0: Good morning. My name is Steve Treichler and it is very, very nice to be here in Sioux Falls. I grew up in uh, northern Minnesota and I originally uh, was an Iron Ranger. Anybody from northern Minnesota? Anybody? There you go. What city? You're from Chisholm? Get out of here. I'm from Hibbing. Oh Oh my gosh. (laughs) That's fantastic. We'll just talk and the rest of you can just forget it. Yeah. That's great. Chisholm is, that's the Twin Cities of Minnesota, is Hibbing and Chisholm, right next to each other. So, uh, yeah, very, very, anyway. So, uh, when I went to college, I uh, amazingly, somehow beyond any understanding that I had, ended up in a Bible study. Because uh, you know what the Iron Range is like, yeah, yeah, it's kind of different. And so, it's a hard, hard-living, mining town. Uh, pretty, pretty rough individuals up there. When people talk about Minnesota nice, or they say we're passive-aggressive, our hometowns are just aggressive, okay? So it's not that kind of place at all. And so when I came down to the University of Minnesota for my freshman year, I ended up going through this weird thing and kind of a depression, and I ended up in this Bible study, and I ended up hearing a pastor speak about who Jesus Christ was. And in the shower, in my dorm I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Well, I I was being baptized at the exact moment, you know. (laughs) Later, I became a Baptist, and that didn't count, but that was my right there in the shower, and so that started a ride for me that just changed everything. I am not the same person that I was before that encounter, and that led me through a lot of ministry different experiences. Uh, I was on staff with the campus ministry called The Navigators for a while, and I met my lovely bride uh, through that. We have three lovely children and one hmm, not-so-lovely beagle, <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, but we are, we, are, we are blessed, and we started Hope Community Church in 1996, and Hope has uh, been a blessing to us, and we've had the opportunity to start 10 other churches, and a couple of those no longer are in existence, but eight of them are, and, and many of them, I haven't really done the count, but I've planted churches as well as now we're experiencing our first will be our first granddaughter, great-granddaughter, churchers. And so that's really exciting. And we love, love, love church planting. I also serve as the uh, Upper Midwest Regional Director for Acts 29, which is how I got to know Jonathan, and I coached him during those early years. And it was fun. I'd be walking the beagle, which you don't really walk a beagle. The beagle walks you. But, but uh, we'd go around, and <laughs> Jonathan would just be bemoaning everything. And I would say, it'll be okay. Just Relax. You'll be okay. It'll be all right. So, But he's done a marvelous job. And it's great to finally be here and have heard so much about you. And it's finally great to see you. I won't tell you all the nasty things he said about you. But now, <laughs> onto to the task at hand. If, if you are in Minnesota, you see one of these. Anybody knows what those are? Deer stands. Anybody new to the upper Midwest? Uh, you probably don't know what those are. You're going to see those everywhere. Those are deer stands. They stay up all year long. And people in our region are very creative in how they make them. Some are just people that are just kind of opportunists. They go like this. Some are a little more comfy in their nature. Some are extremely redneck, going to look something like that. Some are unbelievably luxurious. Okay, and it's like a house on stilts here. I mean it's incredible what people do. Most of them will look, this is kind of a nice one right here, and, and this is actually a pretty accurate picture of one that is in my family. My uncle owns property in western Minnesota by Crookston, uh, Fertile, Minnesota. Anybody know, anyway, you maybe know where that is. Uh, Fertile Minnesota, uh, also Twin City to Beltrami, Fertile Beltrami, Minnesota. And uh, Years ago, my oldest son right now just, gra- excuse me, my youngest son right now just graduated from college, but when he was about five years old, we, I have three boys, and we were all there, we were visiting my uncle, and we were out for a walk, and my uncle had just built this deer stand about a year before, and so we went looking for uh, this, you know, he wanted to say he want to go see it, so we walked out, it's about three quarters of a mile from his house, we walked out to this deer stand, which is in the middle of a woods area, and, and then there's some some cornfields out there, okay? So it's, it's, there's a whole bunch of us, my whole family, I think my folks were there, and my uncle, and everything, and so you couldn't all go up at the same time. So about half of us went up, and my younger son, uh, Calvin, uh, went up as well, and then uh, uh, some of them came down, but Calvin stayed up, and then the rest of us went up, and I was part of the second group, and my wife was part of the first group, and and uh, the first group kind of walked, but they walked a different way. They'd come and say this way, but they decided to walk out that way, okay, to go back to the house. And Calvin was still up with us, and he decided to go down, and he was going to try to catch up with that other group. But instead of going that way, he went that way. So the rest of us were up there a while, and, and we, we, we walked down and didn't think anything of it. And we walked back to the house, three quarters of a mile, just kind of strolling through the woods. We get to the... Back to the house, and Carol looks at me and says, where's Calvin? And I said, "Uh, I thought he was with you. She says, no, he's not with us. And so now we're panicked. We have lost this five-year-old in the woods in northern Minnesota. It is not good. So my uncle gets on his four-wheeler, we hop in our pickup truck, and we start looking for this kid. And we stop every now and then, but the wind is blowing and it is hard to hear, and we're yelling for him, Calvin, 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 can't hear him, anything. And we're searching, and we're now getting really frantic. If you've ever ha- lost something like that, you're, you're frantic. And sure enough, a few minutes pass by, and my uncle pulls up on the four-wheeler, and Calvin is on the back. And he is five years old, and he's at that point, if you <laughs> know any five years old, and they're terrified they can't talk because they're crying so hard. The head, I can't. But uh, you know, like that kind of a deal. And I said, Cal, didn't you, didn't you hear us yell for you? And he said, Yeah, but could you hear me yell back to you? It's like, well, not like that. I mean, I can't, <laughs> I can't hear you. And when when we found him, there was, <clears throat> I've shared the stories many times. I there's an emotion you have you can't explain it. <clears throat> and when you lose something like that, <clears throat> I don't care who you are, I don't care what you believe, you start praying. And your prayers are not, they're just, oh God, help, find him, right? <clears throat> That's what we want to look at this morning. This morning, I want to look at well, how God feels about lost things. How God feels about people uh, and the specific thing I want to lean in on is how God feels about people that a lot of us would give up on. Maybe maybe you even feel like you're that person. And today's message title is called, uh, No One is Beyond the Gospel. No one. And uh, uh, I have some pictures, slides. I, I usually preach with slides. I only got about half of them. That's why the break was kind of long. That don't, don't fault them. Fault the, the hired gun preacher guy here because they were trying to reformat my slides, because I've never seen a screen this big before. And so uh, I came in just with your standard slides, and they were frantically trying to get them fixed. So I got about half of them. The rest are just going to have to uh, kind of pay attention to. I want to talk specifically about how does God feel about lost things today and the fact that Jesus Christ is sufficient for everyone. When I was preparing uh, for this uh, talk years ago when I preached it at our church. I just happened to mention this, and one of our interns, and I don't remember who it was, and I don't remember when it was, but I'll give credit where credit's due. It says it was some intern at some class I taught somewhere. So uh, it says you cannot out the cross. You cannot outsin the cross. If you look in Scripture, I hope that your hero is Jesus. Everybody's hero in the Bible should be Jesus. Repeat it after me. Everybody's hero should be? Jesus. Good. You just said Jesus in church. You get a point. All right? Everybody's hero should be Jesus. But, and maybe, not shouldn't use the word but, but there, there, there's, a, there's a, I'm, I'm not God. No surprise there. My wife will give a hearty amen to that, right? And so for me, in a lot of ways, the Apostle Paul has been a hero to me. Because he's, you know, Jesus, we we should imitate Jesus and be like Jesus, but the Apostle Paul is someone I've read, obviously wrote a third of the New Testament, and and I, I feel like he's a guy I can connect with because he didn't also have this deity aspect that Jesus had. Again, please don't walk out of here saying, don't be like Jesus, be like Jesus, okay? But the Apostle Paul is someone I've really connected with, and the Apostle Paul has three times he's written about something that happened in his own life, as he's reflecting on who he is as time goes on. And if you look early in earlier in his ministry, when he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians to the people in Corinth, he says this, For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believe. So the Apostle Paul, and look at the date here, it's around 55 AD when he writes this letter. Give or take, you know, a little bit. The Apostle Paul writes this and that's what he thinks. He thinks of all the apostles, he says, I'm the least. I'm the least. I don't even deserve that. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. And just just listen to what the Apostle, you want, we all got baggage? Here's the Apostle Paul's baggage. I killed Christians. I had them imprisoned. Whatever you're dealing with, Paul would say, I got you. I did that. As time goes on, as he's writing uh, to the the church in Ephesus, he writes this. He says, I've become a servant of this gospel, this is Ephesians chapter 3, by the gift of God's grace, given me through the working of His power, although I am less than least of all the Lord's people, this grace would given to me the preach to the Gentiles, the boundless riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. What does he say now? Years, a few years have passed. about five years has passed. the Apostle Paul says, "I'm not just the least of the apostles, I'm the least of the church. You line up all the people that go in the church, and I'm last. And then a few years later, when he's writing his mentee, Timothy, somewhere between 63 and 66 AD, so, so three to six years later, he says this to him Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Now, don't read this saying that the Apostle Paul really wrestled, he had a really poor self image. He did not. The Apostle Paul, you can read other places, really likes the Apostle Paul. That's healthy. But he had a really good image of a beautiful Savior. And it was okay for him to say, I'm a sinner, but I have a great Savior. Jerry Bridges writes about this in uh, his book called, uh, the Le- or this is an article called The Least of the Apostles. And he says this, he says, this is, uh, this, what we 're talking about, is quite a progression in his self-awareness. From a I can't read what I said there uh, from a proud, self-righteous Pharisee to the foremost of sinners. Only a person of genuine humility would describe himself in such terms. What turned a once proud Pharisee into a humble apostle of Christ? It was Paul 's understanding of the grace of God. He understood God 's grace to be more than undeserved favor. He saw himself not just as undeserving, but ill-deserving. He knew that in himself, apart from Christ, he fully deserved the wrath of God. Instead, he had been made a herald of the message he once tried to destroy. This is why he followed his assessment as the least of the apostles by the statement, by the grace of God, I am what I am. This is why he would say, to me, although I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. He saw himself as a prime example of the grace of God and his theology of grace produced his humility. So that's what we want to look at today is how do you gain that? How do you understand that level of humility? And therefore, you look at people, other people, differently. Now, I'm going to cheat. I'm totally going to cheat. You bring in a preacher guy, and what's he going to do? I'm going to show you a video of a preacher guy. That's totally cheating, right? It's like Inception. It's like a dream within a dream here, right? Or whatever. So I'm going to do this. But this is the best three minutes and 37 seconds of preaching I've ever heard. And it's by a preacher in Dallas, Texas, Matt Chandler. Uh, if you've ever heard of Matt Chandler, and if you haven't, that's okay. But he's going he was speaking at a conference in Minneapolis, a few blocks from our church at the time in 2009. And this is something that I, I, I want to uh, give you as kind of a, a, a framework for where we're going. I just click right here, right? Okay, there we go.
1: But it, it didn't take long um, before my passion for the gospel and and my passion to see lost men and women saved um, s- started to rub against or collide with the church and and so it wasn't very long and and I, I won't i I can give you dozens and dozens of stories but but really one that kind of broke the camel's back where i decided if i was going to do this i wasn't going to do it as a churchman because the church more often than not was an enemy of conversion and not its friend i'll give you an example Um, this turn in me this break in me happened that god has been just disciplining me on ever since Uh, occurred my freshman year of college when Um, I randomly sat next to a, I'm a freshman in college, I'm sitting next to a 26-year-old single mother who's coming back to school to try to get a degree, never been to church, didn't know much about Jesus, didn't know, and so we began this ongoing dialogue uh, about the grace and mercy of Christ in the cross. And so um, me and some of my crew go over to her house and babysit her daughter. She's actually in an extramarital affair at the time with a married man. And, and so we've talked through that, the wisdom in that. Um, they, they, this is the relationship we had, just kind of serving her and trying to explain to her spiritual things. A friend of mine was playing at a church in the area and, and so I asked her to come. He was a musician I'm, and so I said, hey, a good friend of mine's in a band. He's playing. Um, wh- why don't you come? Wh- why don't you come hear him? And, and so she agreed. She thought it would be a concert. I knew better. It was shady. It was excellent. And um, she came with me, and, and we listened to Robbie play, and, and he was tremendous, just a real anointed guy. And then the, the minister got up, and he said, today I want to talk to you about sex. And so I immediately go, uh-oh, this could be a problem. And, and he took a red rose, and he smelled it and he showed how pretty it was and then he threw it out into the crowd he goes everybody needs to smell this there's about a thousand of us there almost all of us college and high school smell the rose i want you to smell it. i want you to touch it i want you to see the texture in it do it do it and i'm gonna teach and, and then he began what honestly up until this day and this might have to do with my heart i don't i'm still wrestling um was one of the worst most horrific handlings of what sex is and what it isn't that i ever sat through it was fear mongering at, at its best. It was, um, you don't want syphilis, do you? And everybody's smiling and having a good time until there's herpes on your lip, and you right. And so I'm just thinking, with Kim beside me, what are you doing? What are you doing? And and then as it wraps up, he goes, where's my where's my rose? Where where, where is it? Where's where's my rose? And you know, some kid came up. The rose is just completely jacked up. It's broken. The things are off. The petals are broken. And and he lifts it up, and his big crescendo. I mean, his point is to hold up that rose and go, now who would want this? Who would want this rose? And I remember feeling anger, like real, legitimate, I want to hurt him anger. And it was all I could do not to scream out, Jesus wants the rose! That's the point of the gospel, that Jesus wants the rose. That he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ won. You're not even teaching the basics of our faith.
0: should just take an offering right now. I've seen that probably 20 times and it still still chokes me up. There are two kinds of people here this morning, and some of us have a little bit of both. We're either r- roses, or we're despisers. We're people who would look down at others and, and say, who would want that? Who would want that? The De- definition of despise here is just something to look down, a contempt or aversion, despise the weak, to regard as negligible, worthless, distasteful. And what I want to look at is how Jesus Christ dealt with that in his ministry. And in a passage that has been life-changing for me for over 20 years, is one of the reasons why I started a church, one of the main reasons I'm involved in church planting, is because of Luke chapter 15. So if you've got a Bible with you, open up to Luke chapter 15. Uh, we'll be looking at that together. Um, and I think I have slides for most of the text if you want to view it on the screen. Otherwise, you can just pay attention. I'll just I'll read it to you here. Luke chapter 15. I'm going to focus in on the last part of this, but I've got to read it to you in context so you see the whole thing. Otherwise, you, you, won't, uh, you won't see how this all flows otherwise. And here's the context of it. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees, the pastors, okay, let's just be honest, and the teachers of the law, the, the, the seminary professors, muttered, it's a great word, isn't it, muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. We, we hear what you're saying, Jesus, it's interesting, but you welcome, you welcome some pretty messed up people. There's something wrong there. And so they mutter this, and then it says, Jesus tells them this parable. Now, if, if you're doing something and Jesus doesn't talk to you, but he just says, let me tell you a story, you're a dead man, okay? You're the bad guy in the story. And that's what, this is going to happen here. That's what's going to happen. He says, let me tell you a parable. Let me tell you a story. It's one parable, but it has three parts to it. I want to just hit you the first two parts. We're going to focus in on the third part. And maybe, maybe, you've, maybe some of you have heard this a hundred times. You've read Luke 15. You know these parables. You know the parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, parable of the lost son. You're all familiar. I want to shock you this morning a little bit. I want you to be shocked. I just want to read the passage. Just notice a few things, okay? First one, parable of what we would call the lost sheep. Luke 15, uh, verses 1 to 7. It says, uh, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Who loses the sheep? The shepherd lost the sheep. That's what it says. So he's indicting them. You guys are the shepherds? You lost these sheep. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? No, he doesn't. That's a terrible business decision. If I give you a hundred sheep and you're supposed to watch them and you lose one, you don't leave the 99 where? In the open country. Mm. What? Open country? You guys know open country, right? Every animal possible can get them when they're there. No. But He says, doesn't he do that? Jesus is making a point. I do. That's what I do. Doesn't he leave the 99 and go after the, uh, the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. A sheep can weigh up to about 100 pounds. And he goes home. So what did the sheep do to get found? Answer, nothing. The only thing the sheep does is accept being found. That's it. That's all it does. The sheep doesn't earn anything here. Does it, When he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes Home? Home? There's still 99 sheep out in the open country. Don't worry, man, we're partying. I'm partying about this one. He goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So what happens here is you have Jesus Christ and he goes and he finds, he is the shepherd. He leaves the 99. I don't know if you're familiar with that song, Reckless Will Love or whatever. I know it's overplayed if you listen to Christian Radio. Good song. He leaves the 99 and he searches for the one. And when he finds it, he carries it out. You know, a sheep can weigh up to 100 pounds. They were so enthralled by this, they made in early church history, there are pictures of, Of uh, this is the third century. There's a picture of Jesus doing that. Uh, Here's an, oops, here's a, that's funny. They gave me this iPad to click for the next one, and I I just clicked on my paper, but that doesn't work. (laughs) Um, uh, Here's another one. Uh, This is also the third century. This one lost its head. That's an unfortunate uh, thing that happened over the years. But the, okay, then Jesus tells him another story. He goes on, and he says, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Uh, Losing one of those coins would have been about a day's wages. It's not an insignificant amount. Doesn't she she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me! I have found my lost coin. She throws a party and she spends the coin that she found because of how excited she was about finding this lost coin. I I know, I'm looking at people out here, you're mostly pretty young, right? I I know, if I were to ask people here, how many were over, say, 35, how many would be over 35? Raise your hands. Oh, the rest of you, come down front for Children's Church. Come on. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) But when you get about 35, 40 or so, and I'm 53... Man, just finding your keys is, a, is an act of God, you know? <laughs> and I understand the losing stuff. It drives you nuts. And this woman lost a coin, and when she found it, she's so happy she spends the coin for a party. And she's trying to communicate something to these Pharisees. That's how I feel about lost stuff. So now we get to where we really want to get to. We want to get to, to the parable of the prodigal Sons, But it's actually, we call it the parable of the prodigal son. I'm going to talk to you in a minute. I think that's a poor name for it. Because it's actually, Jesus starts out, it says Jesus continued. In other words, he's still telling one concept with three scenes to it. New scene. Let me give you a new way of looking at it. And he says something here that you should underline on your Bible or if you've got a phone, etch the glass. It says this. Us, a, us, there was a man who had two sons. It's not the parable of one son. This is a parable of both sons. There's a man who had two sons. And he says the younger one, the younger one uh, said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. In other words, I want my inheritance now. In other words, could you just die? And if you're not gonna die, could I get my stuff? That's what he's saying. Right? Father, give me my share of the estate, and, 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 and in Jesus, now listen, this man does not exist. The younger brother doesn't exist, and the older brother doesn't exist. They're in Jesus' mind. We can ask all kinds of, Jesus is making a point, and the point here is, he says, the Father gave it to him. Why? I don't know. It's in Jesus' mind. The guy never existed. You can see what's happening here, if we look at uh, this, oops, 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 that, that's it. That's kind of, yeah, we got, it's kind of messed up there, but you see we have the, the uh, chart didn't really come up, uh, paginate real well, but Jesus, uh, the different different groupings, and the lost sheep is the shepherd, and the the uh, lost sheep, uh, excuse me, the shepherd, the coin, and the, I'm sorry, I'm looking at three different ways across, and that, forget it, that doesn't even come out, so we'll just skip that, but anyway, the point is, we have, we have, um, you have these three stories, and they're trying to give an indication of who is, who are the are the Jesus, who's the irreligious sinners and who are the Pharisees? And in this case, the younger brother is going to be like the lost people that Jesus is having dinner with, and the older brother is going to be like the Pharisees. So just hold that in your mind as we read through it. Now, uh, I'm going to quote from a lot from a guy by the name of Kenneth Bailey. If you're really interested in the, 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 the Luke 15, Kenneth Bailey's book called The Cross and the Prodigal is phenomenal. He grew up in the Middle East. He was a missionary kid, and he stayed there most of his adult life. And he's written about some Middle Eastern customs that we wouldn't get in the story unless we knew Middle Eastern culture. And so he, he lists some of these here, and I want to hit you. I don't know why I have this first one. It's pretty obvious, but it was, it was and it is and most certainly was unthinkable for any son to request his portion of the family wealth while his father was still alive. Don't, you don't need any cultural expert to tell you that one, right? I mean... It's just offensive. Okay, so let's keep going on in the story. Jesus continues on in the story. It says, not long after that. So he gives the kid the, remember the story now? He gives the younger brother, he gives him his share of the estate. By the way, the older brother would have gotten two-thirds, and the younger brother would have gotten one-third in that context. He gets a third of the estate, and he goes off. Here's what it says. The younger brother soon got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. All right? It is partay. He is just going nuts. He's going crazy, wine, women, and song. Whatever he wants to do, he does. He has liquidated his third, whatever his father had. He liquidates it, and he goes out, and he's living this wild life. And then it says this, and after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. Jesus is making a point here. He's trying to explain what the, how this kid is feeling. He's feeling very desperate. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Pigs. We got, you got pigs out here, right? You drive by. There's a, there's a place in Nebraska, if you're going out to Colorado. I, I think it's on 80. And when you're driving on this road... You can taste the pig stuff. You can just, it's so thick, all right? So, yeah, believe me, I'm glad pigs exist. I love bacon as much as the next person. I mean, that's a wonderful thing. But to a Jew, <laughs> pigs were untouchable. So he's working with pigs. Jesus is making a point. And then it says, uh, he hired himself while he feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. The pigs are doing better than him. And so he says, he says, when he came to his senses, now a lot of people want to give the younger brother credit here, like, okay, he's he's repenting now. He's understanding all the bad things he's done. Listen to his rationale. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. Don't miss that part of the story. Jesus is making it clear. This kid's repentance has nothing to do with how he felt about the father. It has everything to do about his economic reality. This kid is not noble. Don't look at him like he deserves it. He doesn't deserve anything. He doesn't care. So he comes up with a scheme, and it's an economic answer. I can't eat. My father's servants do. I'll figure out a way to go back. And look at what he says. He says, I'll set out and go back to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, he rehearses his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Now I think I, yeah, let me go. There, one more. There we go. Got up and went to his father. So that's what's going to happen. The kid goes home. Now, let me give you a little bit more history on this by quoting from Philip Bailey here. It says, first century Jewish custom dictated that if a Jewish boy lost the family inheritance among the Gentiles and dared to return home, the community would break a large pot in front of him and cry out his name, so-and-so is cut off from his people. This ceremony is called the kaza, literally cutting off, after it was performed, the community would have nothing to do with the wayward person. See where I'm at. By selling his inheritance and taking it with him, the prodigal takes a huge risk. If he loses that money among the Gentiles, he burns his bridges uh, and has no way to return home. He has no more rights to claim, and no one will take him in. So that's what's supposed to happen. On his way home, they're gonna break this pot, they'll have nothing to do with him. This story is called, oftentimes in history, the prodigal son story, right? You have a son that's prodigal. And it's interesting, we think prodigal, we think in our mind when you hear that phrase, we think it means a wayward person. You keep using that word, it is not what I think you think it means, right? Because if you look up what that word actually means, the word prodigal actually means lavish or you're, you're, you're a very, you spend, you spend a lot. It means uh, recklessly spendthrift. You're yielding abundant. The, the kid is called the prodigal son because he spent all his money on wild living. The story should actually be called the prodigal God because of how extravagant God is. So what happens? What happens here? It says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Stop right there. Picture this in your mind's eye. What's going on now? The kid is coming home. He's decided to come home. And while he's still a dot in the distance, the father looks and says, I know, the, I know that boy. I know his gait. I know how he walks. That's my boy. Now, you don't know, have to be a rocket scientist here. How does the father see the son when he is a long ways away? Go ahead and say it out loud. He's looking for him. I know, it's Captain Obvious, but I make a living on Captain Obvious. He's looking for him all the time. And he sees the boy coming home. And he says, that's my boy. That's my boy. And what does he do? He runs out to him. I'll come back to this. And then it says... Uh, it says that he, oh, sorry, he runs out to his son and then that he is joyful and he says he threw his arms around him and kissed him. He's completely filled with joy for this child. Rembrandt has, fa- has made a famous painting of this episode and here's the picture. And here's the boy. He looks all repentant. His dad's got his hands on him like that. In all due respect to a famous painting, this painting sucks. What it, what it looks like is the father squeezing the stuffing out of the child and lifting him off the ground and so exuberant. Now, this is where I run out of PowerPoint slides, so you just got to believe me for the rest. Maybe I'm just making this stuff up. But anyway, let me read from Kenneth Bailey here. I'm going to keep that picture up because it's, it's a great picture. It says this, so just, it's a a, a couple paragraphs here, so just hang with me, but it's so worth it. As soon as they discovered that the money had uh, been lost among the Gentiles, this is as the boy's coming home now, okay? What would have happened culturally? As soon as this happened, the kazah ceremony would have been enacted. The son would be obliged to sit for some time outside the gate of the family home before being allowed to even see his father. Finally, he would be summoned, With the boy already rejected by the village, the father would be very angry and the boy would be obliged to apologize for everything as he had pleaded for job training in the next village. But that is not what happens here in our story. No one in the village uh, thinks on their own as a separate person but as a part of the tight-knit village society. And the individual solidarity with that community is unshakable. The father, however, reacts in a very Countercultural manner he breaks all the rules of oriental patriarchy as he runs down the road to reconcile his son to himself the word running greek a draman is a technical term used for the foot races in the stadium this middle-aged man sprints towards his son This well-educated man who, uh, Luke, excuse me, Luke is a well-educated man who wrote this and he chooses his words carefully. Thus, we can translate the phrase, his father ran after him into compassion and raced is not just a slow shuffle or a fast walk, he races. In the Middle East, a man of his age and position always walks in a slow, dignified fashion. It is safe to assume that he has not run anywhere for any purpose for 40 years. People ask me that. You know, I do some exercising. And they say, do you run? And I always say, from what? Anyway, no villager over the age of 25 ever runs. But now the father races down the road. To do so, he must take the front edge of his robes, because they wear kind of a cloak, and he lifts them up in his hand like a teenager. When he does this, his legs show in what is considered a humiliating fashion. Old man legs, I can show you, up. this place went empty real quick. Old man legs, right? All of this is painfully shameful for the father. <laughs> for who? The father. The loiterers in the street will be distracted from tormenting the prodigal and would stand and run after the father, amazed at seeing this respectable village elder shaming himself publicly. It is his compassion that leads the father to race out to his son. He knows what his son will face in the village. He takes upon himself the shame and humiliation due the prodigal. Don't miss that. That is the cross of Jesus Christ. He takes your shame and humiliation. Keep going on in the story. I'm on, I'm on verse uh, 21 here. Uh, 20 and 21. Uh, excuse me, let's skip down to verse 21. Uh, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the, fa- the father doesn't even let him. He interrupts him. Doesn't let him keep going on with the story. But let me make you like one of your hired surgeons. He doesn't do that. He says, but the father said to the son, quick, he said to the servants, excuse me, quick. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Put the, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Well, just like the other two times, it's really, really reckless. It's really, really wild. You kill the fatted calf and you partay. That's what God wants to communicate about how he feels about lost things but that's not the end of the story that's not even Jesus point this is Jesus point Jesus is wanting to make a point and so we move on in our story to verse 25 meanwhile the older son was in the field when he came near the house he heard music and dancing so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on your brother has come he replied and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him he has him back safe and sound just picture this now here's the older brother he's out in the field he's working he comes he comes near the house and he hears a party And there, he sees the lights going and people are doing all this. And he's like, what is going on? And he comes up and one of the people come out and they say, your brother's back. And your father is partying because of that. And it's at this moment, this moment, that tiny choice that he chooses, matters all about how he's going to respond to this father and to this son. How's he going to respond? Verse 28. When this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. Now now listen to that. Hear that. What is the older brother saying? He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Slaving for you. You're my father. This is our family business. Eventually I'm going to get two-thirds of it. But that's his view of his relationship with his dad. I do things, and I get things. And that's how this works. That's how my relationship is. I do things, and I get things. I've been slaving for you, but you know what? And he says, all that time, and you never have even given me a young goat to party with my friends. Not to celebrate with you. I don't want to be around you. I don't want a relationship with you. You're just, you're just the one that gives me stuff. And then he says, you know something? You're unjust because I've been doing all this stuff and you're not giving me anything. This guy who comes back and he's taken a third of your wealth and he's squandered it on evil, he comes back and you throw a party? You're unjust. That's what he's screaming at the Father. Now, it's interesting here to think about this that when the father goes out, that also is breaking a serious cultural barrier. Listen to what Kenneth Bailey says one more time. He says, Everyone in the banquet hall tenses expectantly, awaiting to hear the father's reaction. They assume the older son will be punished severely or ignored until the guests are gone and then dealt with harshly. For the second time in the same day, the father's response is incredible. Once again, he just demonstrates a willingness to endure shame and self-emptying love in order to reconcile. The parable briefly and succinctly states, his father came out and entreated him or went to beg him to come in. Beg him, please come in. It is almost impossible to convey the shock that it must have reverberated through the banquet hall when the father deliberately left his guests, humiliated himself before all, and went out in the courtyard to try to reconcile his older son. Tim Keller talks about this and he says this when he he wrote a book called The Prodigal God. It's on Luke 15, the entire book. And he says this. He says, Nearly everyone defines sin as a breaking of a list of rules Jesus, however, shows that a man who has violated virtually nothing on the list of moral misbehaviors can be every bit as spiritually lost as the most uh, uh, prolificate, immoral person. Why? Because sin is not just breaking the rules. It is putting yourself in the place of God as Savior, Lord, and Judge. Pride in his good deeds rather than remorse over his bad deeds was keeping the older son out of the feast of salvation. The elder brother's problem is his self-righteousness, the way he uses his moral record to put God and others in his debt to control them and get them to do what he wants. His spiritual problem is the radical insecurity that comes from basing himself uh, on achievements and performance. So he must endlessly prop up his sense of righteousness by putting others down and finding fault. As one of my teachers in seminary put it, the main barrier between the Pharisees and God is not their sins, but their damnable good works. So the father in the story ends it in Luke chapter 15, verses 31 and 32. It says, my son, the father says, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. He's inviting the older brother in and he says, we had to celebrate. He was lost and now he's found. And Jesus takes the mic and drops it and that's the end of the parable. How do they respond? How do we respond? Who are we in this story? There's some invitations given here. There's a younger brother. The younger brother is like the lost coin, he's also like the lost sheep. If you go back to the lost sheep, how'd the sheep get lost? We don't know. Jesus made it up. So I'm going to make something up. Maybe the sheep got lost because it saw a butterfly. Oh, look at the butterfly. Wow, that's a butterfly! Yeah, oh, look another one! Oh, wow! Look a whole bunch of butterflies! Oh, look at that! More grass! Oh, there, there. <gasps> Where is everybody? And maybe that's you. Maybe you just kind of wandered. <laughs> or maybe you're more like the prodigal son. you planning this thing out? If I do this, this, and this, and this, I can just go a long ways away or somewhere in between starts off with a butterfly and then now I'm going to do this and then maybe a couple more butterflies and this and you turn around and you are lost there's an invitation for you if this is you that this morning and the invitation is come home come home the father is waiting for you like a dot in the distance to come and he will come running out to you no matter where you're at no matter what you've done the apostle paul has outsend you he says and he wrote a third of the new testament come home many of us have come home and trusted jesus christ as our savior and then something slipped in us and it might have been it might have been just You know, maybe we had a friend and we were pouring into their life and they made a series of bad decisions. And somewhere in there, as this friend was making this series of bad decisions, I started looking down on them and saying, something's wrong with you. What's wrong with you? Look, if you look down at any person on the planet, you're the older brother in the story. Anyone. I'm going to touch a nerve here, but I'm a guest preacher. I get to I'm leaving today, so it's okay. Maybe you don't like someone because of their political views. Ugh, sorry. Maybe you've you've come in on that and you just can't stand you. I look down on you. Now you're just full of judgment towards other people. They think wrong. They're these kind of people. If Jesus were here today, he'd hang out with people that you and I would not normally associate with. And it would expose our hearts that we're like that. But there's an invitation for you too. And what's the invitation? Come into the party, come home. Drop all that judgment and realize, like the Apostle Paul said, I'm the least, I'm the prodigal son. I'm the one who've been judging. Yeah, I haven't done all this other stuff out there, but there's something like cancer that's gone into my soul that I need to come back to you, Father, and the Father will squeeze the stuffing out of you too. But you've got to come there. and If you don't, it'll eat you up like a cancer. Martin Luther King Jr., in the midst, and I'm reading a biography of him right now, in the midst of incredible suffering, and people that would bomb his house and shoot through his door and all these kinds of things said two things that have always amazed me. One is we can never hate. If we fill ourselves with hate, we lose. We have to love these people. They've just been, they've raised, been raised wrong. It's not their fault, he would say. He preached that all the time. And then the second thing he said is forgiveness is not, occasion, forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a constant attitude. So let me close by asking you, to everybody in the room, no matter where you're at, will you come home? Will you come home? Will you party with others who come home? And do you resemble the prodigal God? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for Connection Church and what you're doing here. I want to thank you that before me are great people who are all ill-deserving of your grace, present company included. And Lord, that you have done a marvelous work with everyone in this room. So God, I just ask that uh, that you'd give us the courage and the grace to come home. God, if we're harboring bitterness in our heart towards another person, right now, right here, that we'd repent of that. We'd turn from that and turn towards you. And for some in this room, maybe for the very first time in their lives, they realize, I'm that lost sheep. I'm that lost coin. I thought thought I'd done things that were beyond, beyond being saved, beyond being uh, reconciled with the Father. And yet they hear your heart this morning and I pray, God, right where they're at right now that they would say yes to you. They would accept being found like the lost sheep. They would they would accept you right where they're at. They would trust you as Savior and as Lord. They would open their hearts to you. And God, for those of us who did it years ago, oh, God, would you keep us from slipping into being older brothers and not caring about the world and people who you desperately love. Make us like you we pray. Prodigal God in your name.